we're in Genesis chapter 35, Genesis uh, 35 this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to draw near to you. This promise that you give us, that if we draw near to you, that you'll draw near to us. And as you call Jacob back to Bethel, that first love relationship with you, Lord, help us to remember uh, when we first fell in love with you and to renew that joy of our salvation. So would you meet us through your word and really bless our time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God allows us to return home. Uh, you think about the prodigal son. He was entitled. He's asking for his inheritance even before his father has passed away. Surprisingly, the father extends it to the son and he enters into this time of entertainment, this time of just taking all of the inheritance and squandering it on himself, partying and sinful living, comes to the end of himself and he says, I want to be back as a servant in my father's house. He's lost that entitlement mentality and he comes back and the father's waiting, waiting for him to return and welcomes him home. And that power of being able to come home and write fellowship with God. God not only welcomes back the one prodigal who has wandered away, but God also welcomes back the prodigal church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus writes letters to seven churches, and one is the church of Ephesus. They have quite a resume. They have sound doctrine, they have good works, but God says, this one thing I have against you, that you have left your first love. Remember from which you've fallen. Repent and redo your first works. And God welcomes back this church to fellowship with him and being in love with uh, Jesus Christ. Amazing promise to us given by God. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Not, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If we draw near to him, then he's going to respond and he's going to draw near to us. Jacob is called by God to return, to return to Bethel in our text this evening. And Bethel was the place where God first revealed himself to Jacob. And it's time for him to get back to that first love relationship with him. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. If you were with us a few weeks ago, chapter 34 is a dark chapter. It was filled with lust and murder and lies and genocide. The name of God is not mentioned one time in chapter 34. But chapter 35 begins with God not rejecting this family this family that's in a dark place, and we see God speaking over and over in this chapter. We see God revealing himself once again as the God Almighty, the El Shaddai. There's 11 times where God will refer to Jacob and Israel. He's, he's pursuing Jacob coming out of this dark place. And aren't you so thankful that God pursues us in the dark places of our lives, in the dark places of our families, and so it's with this 
backdrop that the Lord speaks to Jacob and says, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. It's time for you to get back to Bethel. And when you get there, make an altar to God. And he reminds Jacob saying, this is where I appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. It's been some 30 years now since Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing that belonged to his brother. Esau wants to kill Jacob, so Jacob runs for his life. Jacob flees for his life and comes to Bethel, sleeps upon a stone. God speaks to him through a dream with angels coming from a ladder, up and down the ladder. Jacob responds and says, the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. Then Jacob made a commitment saying, God, if you bring me back to this place, I'm going to serve you. And God is calling Jacob back to when he first revealed himself to him. And he's also calling Jacob back to that commitment, to that vow that he had made some 30 years ago. And see, God remembers He remembers our love for him. He remembers commitments that we've made to him to serve him. And he calls us back to that place. He calls us back to a place of personal fellowship with him and in love with him. And we love God because he first loved us. We respond to the grace of God by loving the Lord and giving our love uh, to him. If we're not in a place where we're loving the Lord, we've missed it. We've missed it completely. And sometimes our lives may still look okay from the outside. Maybe we're able to keep up the facade or maybe even we're able to keep up with some of the moral obligations. Our life necessarily hasn't come unhinged. Sometimes it has, but other times it still looks okay from the outside, but we're beginning to die on the inside. So wherever we're at, wherever, maybe we're in a place where we've completely drifted or we're in a place where we've still been able to keep up the veneer, but inside we know we're not loving the Lord. The Lord wants to call us back to that place of loving him. That's what our relationship with God is all about, is loving him, loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's loved us and saying, God, I'm choosing to to love you. So where is your place of Bethel? Where did God first get a hold of your life? Where did he speak to you? When did you first surrender to him? What were some of the first works that you were doing when you first fell in love with Christ? Where was it, you know? Can you remember? Was it a particular church? Was it a particular city? Was it a particular person? Were you driving down the road? Were you walking home from school? Maybe you're saying, you know what? I don't know that I've ever fell in love with the Lord. I don't know if I've ever had this kind of experience that that you're describing. This is what God intends. He intends for us to, to love him. And just like Jacob, God will call us back to that place of Bethel. Call us back to being in love uh, with him. So verse two, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. What's interesting about this is God didn't tell Jacob to do this. This is a result of Jacob hearing God's voice. Of Jacob knowing that he's being called back into fellowship with the Lord. 
to get his love relationship right with the Lord. All God had to do to Jacob was to say, Jacob, go to Bethel and dwell there and build an altar. Get worship right in your life. And Jacob understood that that meant he needed to deal with the household idols. He needed to come back to his family and say, look, we need to get right with God. Where did these household idols come from? Well, we know that Rachel stole Laban's household idol. We also know that two of his sons killed all of the men in Shechem, chapter 34, took the spoil, so they probably took some idols uh, with them. But remember, the idols that they worshipped, it represented a philosophy. These idols represented things of importance in their lives. These are actual objects that they're giving their worship to. In 1 John, John the disciple, he writes to us about the love of God, of loving God, and then he leaves a little P.S., by the way, at the very end of the letter. It says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. In essence, he's saying idols are a threat to rob you from the knowledge of God's love and being in love with God. And maybe this is why we don't want to go back to Bethel, why we're comfortable to stay in the spiritual condition that we're in because we're going to have to deal with idols in our lives. We're going to have to sanctify ourselves and set ourselves apart for God. So what would be an idol? An idol is really anything that we put above our relationship with the Lord. It can be something sinful, but it can also be something that is not sinful, but has taken the wrong priority. We can even take our families and put them before the Lord, or we can take ministry and and put it before the Lord. We can take our jobs and, and put it before the Lord. Those things are not sinful, but they can become an idol if they're in their improper place. What is it in our lives that maybe God's saying, this is robbing you from your affection of Jesus? This has become too important or it is in the wrong priority. Why would they purify themselves and change their garments? This is outward actions to show what's taking place in their relationship with God. There's this physical purification of of taking a bath, but hopefully something deeper is taking place of saying, I'm being consecrated under God. I'm changing my garments, desiring that God would do a change in my life. This becomes one of Paul's favorite illustrations where he says to put off the old, put off these old garments and you're robed in the new garments of, of Christ. You know, you think about when you do change your clothes, it does signify that you're headed in a different direction, right? If you've been working out in the the yard all day or you've gone to the gym and gotten all sweaty and hot and then you're headed maybe to church, you might take a shower and change your clothes if you have time to be able to do that, right? If you've got an important work meeting and you've been working out in the yard, you might say, okay, I'm gonna do some purification here. I'm gonna change my clothes. And so all of this speaks of how they're pursuing God and the the deeper spiritual understanding. In verse three, then let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. He says, we're gonna go to Bethel. I'm responding to God's voice. God met me in my distress. 
What are some points of distress where God met you, where God was faithful, where God saw you through, where there was a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, there was confusion, being overwhelmed, distress, and you cried out to the Lord and the Lord met you. We can keep that close to our hearts as a remembrance, but then also what Jacob says is God's been with me everywhere I've gone from that point. He met me in my distress in Bethel when my brother was trying to kill me, but there hasn't been a day over this 30 years where God has not been with me. And God has been with you as well. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He has been with us. In verse four, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. The family responds. The family's ready for Jacob to take leadership, to call them on that idolatry and prepare their hearts to worship the Lord in Bethel so they get all their idols out of the house. And some of the idols were connected to some of their earrings. Maybe some of these false gods also depicted in in the earrings and they, they take the earrings out as well. And Jacob says, we're done with these. I'm going to bury these. We're, we're leaving them here in Shechem as we travel to Bethel. And ultimately, it's the, the tree of Calvary where Christ died. It's Christ's burial, his resurrection, where we're able to bury our idols. We're able to say, this is buried with Christ, and now I'm risen in newness of life. I don't have to serve this anymore. Money doesn't have to be my master anymore. Sexual sin is not my master any longer. My pride, my anger, it doesn't rule me any longer. I'm not looking for affirmation of others. That's not going to be where I find my my identity. Whatever our idol is to say, look, that's buried with Christ and I'm risen in newness of life. Verse five, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember Jacob's concern about his two sons destroying, killing all of the men of Shechem because of the rape of their sister Dinah? Was, well, now the Canaanites are going to want to destroy us because of what we've done. And God in his grace gives Jacob and his family, his sons, their, their children, protection And those in this region, they were actually afraid of Jacob. The the terror of God was upon the cities. And they said, we're not going to mess with Jacob. We understand that Jacob serves the one true living God. And that's God's grace. I wonder if it was Jacob's fear of these surrounding people groups that kept him from going in Bethel in the first place. Because he knew Bethel's where he met the Lord. He knew Bethel was the place that he had made a vow from God. But it's been about 10 years now since he's left Laban's house. And first he dwells outside of the promised land. And then he's in the promised land. But he's not back in Bethel. And God was faithful to uh, protect him. In verse 6, So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there. And called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. 
he comes back to this place, Bethel. 30 years, 30 years later, things have changed a little bit. He was a young, single man running for his life. Now, he's got four wives, 12 sons, a daughter, cattle, lots of cattle. God has really blessed him. God has really been faithful to him and saw him through all of these these hardships. And he comes back and he built an altar to the Lord. God, my life belongs to you. My worship belongs to you. My love belongs to you. El Bethel, it means the God of the house of God. So it's an interesting title, the God of the house of God. Bethel means house of God, but he's saying, you're the God of the house of God. The emphasis in El Bethel is not upon the house of God, but the one who dwells in the house. So he's focusing on the Lord, not on the place. He's thankful to be in the place, and it has huge significance to him, but he's saying, the one that I'm truly focused in is the Lord. I'm sure that God met you in a particular place, but it wasn't about the place, was it? It was about the Lord. And you may not live in that place any longer. You now live in a new location, and part of your heart longs for the physical location, And it's not about the physical location. It's about the God who met you in that location. Amen? He's there. He's worshiping the Lord. He's responding to the Lord's call. He builds this altar to the Lord. Jacob is altered as he's building an altar. He's changed as he has worshiped the Lord. And the same is true in our lives. We're changed as we worship the Lord. How do we build an altar to the Lord? What might that look like in our lives? To be a living sacrifice to God? To daily choose to say, God, here's my eyes, my ears, my heart, my hands, my feet. I'm responding to your grace and your goodness. I'm a living sacrifice to you. To want to sing to the Lord like we did this evening. To to worship him, to praise him, to be in a place of, of gratitude is to build an altar to the Lord, that sacrifice of of praise. To serve, to serve the Lord and the things that he has called us to is to build an altar to the Lord. Honoring God in the physical things, the finances that, that he has provided to be a giver, to tithe and to invest resources into the things of the kingdom. That's a physical way of building an altar to, to the Lord. But we want to respond in worship. We want to respond in building altars. In verse 8, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alnon Bakuth. This is Rebecca's nurse. So this would be Jacob's mom's nurse or her handmaiden. And for sure, she had a huge part in raising Jacob as Rebecca's nurse. The timing's interesting. He's just now come back into the area of the promised land that he was raised in, comes back to Bethel where the Lord has met him. He reconnects with Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, and she passes away, and it would no doubt bring him back to his childhood. It would no doubt bring him back to to his younger years. And God will do this in our lives when he is wanting to bring our attention back to 
our first love relationship, sometimes he'll start to bring things back up from that season of our lives to remind us, hey, this is when you fell in love with me. Maybe it was a grandma who really impacted you in the things of God. And all of a sudden, you're reminded about her or she does pass away. And with that, you're reminded of, man, this is when I first fell in love uh, with the Lord. In verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pandan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God is gracious and faithful to speak to him again and say, Jacob, you're no longer Jacob, but you're Israel. God has already told him this. This is not new information, but he has to be reminded that his identity has been changed. Jacob means heel catcher. The essence of it is deceiver. Israel means governed by God or ruled by God. He's saying, look, you're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel, and I'm going to call you Israel. And there's several places in the scripture where God changes people's names. Abram to Abraham. Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul, Jacob to Israel, and it speaks of the change in their lives, the change of character that he brings to them. And we're new creations in Christ, and there's times where God has to remind us, hey, you're a new creation in Christ. You're no longer this that used to define you. You're now my son, you're, you're my daughter. Now walk in that new identity. That's really the message to Jacob here is is you need to walk in this new identity that I have given to you and I have placed upon you. In verse 11, also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. In chapter 17, verse 1, God speaks to Abram and says, I, the God Almighty, and he gives him the promise of his covenant to bless him with descendants and bless him with the land. This God Almighty in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. It means most powerful one. So God uses the same phrase in describing himself in confirming and reaffirming this covenant with Jacob. I am the God Almighty. I am the most powerful one. So Jacob must have been wrestling as he's coming into Bethel and he's reestablishing this worship with the Lord. He must be wondering, is God's promise going to be fulfilled? Are we really going to be a great nation? Are we really going to have this land And God says, I'm the Almighty. I am the the El Shaddai. And sometimes as we lose sight of God's love for us and our love relationship with him, we also lose sight of his character. We lose sight of who he is. Remember when you first fell in love with the Lord and you understood that God is the all-powerful one? It was like, oh yeah, God can deal with the problems in my life. I know that the Lord's gonna be faithful You didn't have to have anybody try to convince you of that. It's like, man, Jesus has saved me from my sins. He can take care of everything else that's going on in my life. And then the longer we, we walk with the Lord, 
we do know that he's the most powerful one, but it can be easier to start to doubt him. And the Lord's like, hey, take a look at me again. I am the most powerful one. I'm the God of creation, the God that spoke everything into existence. I'm the God of the cross who gave my son to to die upon the cross. And we need that fresh perspective of God. We need that fresh view of God that there's nothing that's impossible for him. He's the the El Shaddai. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to be able to fulfill his, his promises. I recently just read a book called Unshakable Hope, and it's by Max Lucado. And it's his 40th year of ministry, 40th year of pastoring. That's pretty good. And in this 40th year of pastoring, he wrote a book about his personal favorite promises of God and how he tries to rely upon the promises of God. And at the end of the book, he says, I encourage you to take eight or ten of your own personal promises of God and really hold on to those promises throughout your, your life. And in the midst of that, what is he saying? He's saying, I need a fresh perspective on who God is. I need to make sure that I'm seeing God accurately as the most powerful one, the El Shaddai, that's able to, to make thing ha- things happen. So God reminds him, I'm God Almighty. But he also reminds him of the promise. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Kings are gonna proceed from you. It's gonna be a thousand years before King Saul reigns over, over Israel, but it is fulfilled. And this land that I have given to you, it's gonna belong to your descendants. What is the most contested piece of real estate in the world? Texas. No, no, no Texas is not the most contested place in America. There's, there's really no argument over that. Texas belongs to the United States, not to Mexico. I mean, that's pretty much established, especially in the mind of Texans. Amen, right? But when it comes to Israel, it's really contested, isn't it? Everybody's like, man, the Israelites, the Jews, don't have right to this land. And this has happened for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Why is that? Because it's the only piece of real estate that God assigns to one people group. This might be news to us as Americans, but God has not ascribed this part of the globe to us, right? But he did say to the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites, that they get this piece of land called called Israel. And so why is it so contested? Because there is that spiritual element behind it. If you don't realize the spiritual element behind it, you'll never understand this dilemma and this debate that takes place over the promised land. But God has said it. He's given it to the descendants of Abraham and God will be faithful to that promise. In verse 14, so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So this is the place where God appears to him and speaks to him that the second time he's still in this region of of Bethel and he builds a pillar and then he pours a drink offering on the pillar and he pours oil on on the pillar and he takes time to be able to name it. What stood out to me about this is that Jacob treasured and revered God speaking to him. 
And when we come before the word of God, we want to come in humility and anticipation, trembling that God would speak to us. And when he does speak to us through his word, we want to document it. We want to write it down. We want to build a pillar. We want to have a, a drink offering. We want to put some, some water there. We want to put some oil there. All of this is Jacob's way of saying, I want to process and I want to remember and I want to apply what God is, is speaking to me. And there's those times where you're reading the word and you're like, man, I know that that's exactly for me. We want to document it. There's times where we're listening to a message and God's got our attention. There, there's times where there's circumstances and we realize it's more than that, that the Lord's speaking to us. We, we want to we'll document it. And sometimes we can take it pretty flippantly. We can go, oh yeah, the Lord spoke to me through his word. Move on. You know, oh yeah, the Lord's speaking to me through my circumstances. I'll move on. But to really stop and say, yeah, I want to take that in. I want to build a pillar. I want to thank the Lord for speaking to me in, in that way. In verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were, and they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathath, Rachel labored in childbirth as she had hard labor. So this chapter moves pretty quickly. Now we see that Rachel is expecting her second child. If you remember some of the family dynamics uh, with Jacob, he wanted to marry Rachel, but Laban did the old switcheroo. He labored for seven years, and then God, Laban, gave Leah to be his wife instead of Rachel. So he wakes up on his honeymoon, and he can't believe it. This is Leah instead of Rachel. Goes back to Laban, I really love Rachel. Well, you can have her too, so now he's married to sisters. The worst idea on the planet, right? And he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. And God sees that and gives children to Leah, but Rachel's barren for a long time. And Rachel's finally able to have a son. And now Rachel is pregnant with her her second uh, son. And she's coming to Ephrathath, which is not too far from Bethlehem. And it's a difficult delivery. Now it comes to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called his name Benjamin. So she dies in childbirth of her second son, Benjamin. And she calls him Ben-Onai, which literally means son of sorrow. She realizes she's dying, and this son is the end of her life, and she calls her son, son of sorrow. Now, chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel is really upset about not being able to have children, understandably, and she goes to Jacob, and she says, give me children lest I die. And now she dies in childbirth. She died in the thing that she longed for so much. And if our longing, our love, isn't for the Lord, sometimes what we long for, I've got to have this or else I die. Life is not worth living unless I have this, you know? That may be your expression in a relationship. I've got to have this relationship or I'd rather not live. 
I've got to have this job or, or life has no meaning. I've got to have this house fill in the blank. And it's ironic that Rachel would say this and then it is children, it's childbirth where she ultimately loses her, her life. This had to have been quite the blow for Jacob because this is the wife that he loved. This is why God wants us to be one man with one woman for life because it was impossible for Jacob to love these four women the same and he loves Rachel. I'm sure they were so excited as Rachel was expecting their second child, right? And here in a moment, everything's going good but the labor is difficult and she dies in in childbirth. Jacob has the wisdom to change his name that he's not the son of sorrow. For the Hebrews, their name was really important, what their name meant. Could, could you imagine, hey, what's your name mean? Oh, son of sorrow. I killed my mom when I came out, right? And Jacob says, no, you're not son of sorrow. You're the son of my right hand. And that's what Benjamin means. So verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Rachel is very influential in the birth of the nation of Israel with Joseph and Benjamin. And here she is buried in Bethlehem where Christ will be born eventually. Then Israel, Jacob, journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Reuben is his oldest son, born of Leah. Bilhah is the handmaiden of Rachel, who has just passed away, the favored wife. Reuben knows how this is going to go. Okay, dad loves Rachel the most. Rachel's dead, so now he's going to love Bilhah the most because she was Rachel's handmaiden. And once again, Leah, my mom, is going to be less loved. So I'm going to make a play on this and have relationship with Bilhah. It wasn't that he loved Bilhah or got caught up in a romance with Bilhah. He's trying to get his dad because what would take place after he had this relationship with Bilhah is most likely then Jacob would no longer have sexual relationship with with Bilhah. And so he's really trying to manipulate to get mom to be the most loved. Also in the ancient world, if you slept with dad's concubines, as gross as that is, it was you saying, I have claim to dad's inheritance. We see Absalom doing that with David's wife when he went into Jerusalem and overthrew David's throne. He slept with David's wife saying, I'm taking dad's inheritance. So, so this is a play on dad's authority that takes place from, from Reuben. And at this point, Jacob, Israel, doesn't say anything, but at the end of his life, he does. In Genesis 49, verse 3 and 4, when He's about ready to die. He prays and speaks prophetically over his sons and he begins with Reuben. This is Genesis 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. He said, you're my firstborn. You're my my son. But then he goes on to say, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. 
then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Jacob never forgot this. And on his deathbed, he speaks out into Reuben's life. In 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of, of Joseph. So as we see Jacob returning to the Lord, we see this great sweetness of restoration in his fellowship with God, but we also see some of the residual effects of Jacob's sin. Jacob, in deceiving his dad, then reaped what he sowed, and Laban deceived him, and now he has two wives. What does Jacob do? He decides also to have sexual relationship with their handmaidens, so he's got four wives. So he has these 12 sons from four different women, and there's this residual effect that's happening from the way that Jacob lived his life. I was reading a commentary uh, by Kent Hughes, and he said that he was out sailing on a lake in Michigan, one of the, the Great Lakes, and this big yacht comes up, this 45-foot yacht, beautiful, millions of dollars, and then the name of the yacht was Residual. And the message is clear. Somebody made some really good investments and they had the residual income and were able to buy this, this yacht. But then Kent Hughes went on to say, what if this word residual was on top of your jail cell? Has an entirely different meaning, doesn't it? Right? But there is this truth of we reap what we sow. And God in his grace always allows us to return into fellowship with him but he also allows us to reap what we sow to be able to teach us. And we see that taking place in Jacob's life. So we have these 12 sons listed. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pandanaram. These 12 boys become men, have their own families, and this becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the birth of the nation of Israel. God birthed the nation of Israel out of brokenness. It's his grace that births the nation of Israel. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The days of Esau were 180 years. We don't ever see Jacob joining back in fellowship with his parents Isaac and Rebekah. It's part of the residual impact of, of Jacob's sin. He's here at the funeral, but we don't see any documentation of Jacob and Isaac being together and having a, a conversation. And that had to grieve Jacob's heart. The neat thing about Isaac is he was the promised child, if you remember from Abraham, and he never left the promised land. And his sons who were estranged are brought together back at his death. So I want to try to get to the heart of this message tonight, this section of scripture. 
is God is calling us back to Bethel. He, he wants us to be in that place of him being number one in our lives and that love relationship with him. And this year has been a good year for me, an interesting year, a challenging year at times. And I grew up at a church, Applegate Christian Fellowship, that is my Bethel. It's where God really got a hold of my life as, as a teenager. And went to school ministry there, and then when I was young, left Southern Oregon, uh, served at a church in Nampa, Idaho, and then came on staff here at Rocky Mountain Calvary when I was 21 years old, just, just before my 22nd birthday. And my family left Southern Oregon, so I just have an aunt and uncle left there. So there hasn't been a lot of reasons for me to go back to, to Applegate, to go back to uh, Southern Oregon. And now my parents live uh, up in Denver, and my wife's parents live in Denver, and with our four kids and the long trek, we just don't, don't get out there much. So it's been years and years and years and years and, and years since I've been back at Applegate, probably close to 19 years, the last time I was back uh, to be at my friend Luke Lavis's uh, wedding. And a friend of mine passed away this year, uh, Peter John. He's, he's my pastor's son, and he had cancer. He's the same age as me, one year older in school. Um, and I just felt led by the Lord, man, I need to make time to get back to, to Applegate to just be at at this funeral, and hadn't stayed in touch with Peter John uh, in, in all of these years, but just followed his story, and, and very thankful for the Corson family in my life, and, and talked with Sean here, and Robert, uh, you know, good friends, and, and pastors on our staff, and they encouraged me, you just, you, you need to go, just make the time to go, and it was short notice, and it worked out for Amber to be able to come with me. She's never been to, to Southern Oregon as well. And I'm reading my devotions, and I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm in Genesis 35. That's where I was in my devotions. And the Lord was speaking in my heart, Eric, it's time to go back to Bethel. It's time for you to remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. And as I got to Applegate, and it was a really quick trip, and I pulled up into the parking lot, and I sat in the sanctuary, as it was a time of celebrating Peter John's life, I, I had all of these memories of how the Lord spoke to me in that sanctuary, through the teaching of God's word, and through worship, and through my youth pastor, who was there at the funeral, and times when he would sit down with me on the stage and, and, and pray with me. And the message was really clear to me is, is, Eric, do you love me like you did then, when you were 14 years old, when you were 15 years old, when you were, you were 16 years old? And it, it's time to get back to that place. And it was a real gift from the Lord. Um, and I ran into a lot of people that invested a lot into my life during that early time. And it wasn't a lot of time on a calendar. It was a handful of years, but it, it was a very much a wet cement type in my life. You know, and, and I can tell you that now, 20 years later, and years of pastoring, and wonderful years of marriage, and four beautiful kids, all that really matters in my life is loving Jesus. That's what really matters in my life. I, I love being a husband. I love being a dad. I love being a pastor. But I'm ready to stop pastoring if it means that I'm not loving Jesus. 
I want to love Jesus more than I want to be your pastor. Like, I, I want to be in ministry for another 20 years. You know, I, I'm 41 years old. Maybe God will give me 40 more years in ministry. I don't know. Like, I want my life to be effective, and I feel like God has called me to be a pastor. But I want to love Jesus even more than I want to be a pastor. And I know that that might sound weird, but sometimes that gets mixed up in the years of pastoring. You know, in all the years of preparing messages and, and doing sermons, you can lose sight of what is the most important, and that's, that's loving Jesus. You know, it's not about what we do for a living. It's about loving Jesus. And as I'm giving this message, I'm still very much feeling stirred of feeling and hearing the voice of my Savior saying, Eric, love me, love me, love me, love me. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And as I was praying over this message, I, I feel like that there's some of you that you need to come back to the Lord. You need to return. You need to remember your, your Bethel, and you need to respond to the Lord and say, I got to get back to Bethel and build an altar and return to that place of first love. Because it's not about all of the other things that we make it. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our emotions. It's not about our experiences. It's not about whether people appreciate us. It's not even, first and foremost, about our families. It's about Jesus. And it's about loving him and passionately loving him and him not being second place in our lives. And I want to read to you what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says, I want you to remember and that's what's going on for Jacob. God's speaking to him. He says, remember Bethel? Remember. And stop and remember, when did God speak to you? How did he intervene in your life? And then repent. There's this change of mind and change of direction of somewhere I went wrong. Somewhere I got distracted. Somewhere I've left my first love. God doesn't say to the church of Ephesus that you lost it, that you lost your first love. It's not like a pair of keys that you put down that you can't find. It was slow but deliberate choices to leave their first love. But then God in his grace and his loving kindness, he says, look, go back and redo those first works. What were the things that you did when you first fell in love with Jesus? As a 14-year-old, Falling in love with Jesus, it was really simple. I couldn't get enough of God's word. I would wake up in the morning, and I just couldn't help but spending time in God's word. I started serving in children's ministry. That's something that God put on my heart right away. And this dates me, but at the end of Wednesday night services, someone was walking around in the foyer with cassette tapes. If you don't know what those are, Google it, right? And they would give away these cassette tapes of the Wednesday night teaching. And these cassette tapes were like gold to me. Like I was getting a free cassette, cassette tape. And I would go home after the study 
And the church was like 30, 40 minutes from our house out in the country. And we get home to our house and it's late at night. It's like 9.30 at night. And I'd get that cassette and I'd listen to that teaching. I just couldn't help myself. I just wanted to hear more of God's word. And I had school the, the next morning and had to be up really early. I just, I couldn't get enough of God's word. Like the, the love of God went off in my heart like a bomb. And it's like, I just want to read God's word. So I know when I'm drifting from my Bethel, when I'm not hungry for this. When, when I'm not just waking up in the morning saying, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to search you out in the word. And I wasn't preparing sermons. I wasn't reading this to be a pastor. I just, I just wanted to know Jesus. I wanted to know, know this love. And it's different for all of us. For some of you, it was witnessing. That was your first work. Like you were out there telling people about Jesus. We'll get back to that. For some of you, it was worship. Like you were playing the guitar and singing all the time. And you sounded terrible, but it didn't matter, right? And, and so you get back to that. Pick up your guitar again. You know, for some of you, it was prayer. And you would go on prayer walks. Get back to that. Get back to that. Return to that Bethel. So I want to invite you as you take communion tonight. Communion is that place of remembrance. Is that place of remembrance. And just get real personal with Jesus. Just get up close to him. Draw near to him. And say, Lord, have I left my Bethel? And see what the Lord would, would say to you. So let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you call us back to return to you, that your love is consistent in that open invitation. God, would you speak to our hearts tonight? Would you reveal to us where we're at? If there's idols that need to be dealt with, that you would expose those. And we want to get back to this place of simplicity, this place of realness and authenticity of loving you. So God, would you meet us tonight in communion? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.